This weekend, if you had the opportunity to read any of the editorials that were put out by the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, if you're a believer, the thing that just jumps out at you completely and totally is they don't get it. And I think that part of that is my fault and the fault of preachers like me because we've done a very poor job of just explaining exactly why this story is so important. And so I want us to back up a little bit. In fact, I want us to back up as far as you can go all the way to the garden. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read the story of the very first uh, incident with sin. And the Bible tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's interesting to me that the enemy still uses the same argument today. His first argument is always, did God really say, do we, do we really have to believe this, all this stuff? Is it really all that important? Just throwing a question out there. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the uh, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, And the the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. The eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. And from that act, that simple act of defiance, every sin that man has ever known came from that moment. Every sickness that mankind has ever known came from that moment. Every time that a person has stood in a doctor's office and been told, I'm so sorry, but the test came back positive, came from that moment. Every wife who stood in her husband's room as he slowly melted away in pain and cried out with everything in her, Why? came from that moment. Every murder, every rape, every sickness, every evil that has existed in humanity came from that moment. God had promised them, in the moment that you eat from the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. On that day, you will die. And yet, those spiritually dead at this point They lived. They breathed. So we know that every day that we have today is a gift. And so the human experience is that intermingling, the problem of pain and the problem of joy. Why did God let us live in the first place? Mingled with why are we surrounded by so much pain? We know that every human who's ever born is a sinner. We know that because any of you who've ever been around a kid knows that they're wicked little sinners. Nobody has ever had to teach their child to lie. Nobody. Nobody's ever sat down and said, now listen, if you want to get out of it, what you've got to do is come up with a story. 
Nobody's ever done that. But we've all been in that scenario where you're looking at your kid covered in the chocolate with chocolate on their fingers. Did you eat the cake? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. I am clueless about this, this scenario that you're putting forth. I was simply praying in the other room, and I, I have no idea. Why would, you, why would you accuse me of this? And they're just little liars, and they're just wicked, wicked and evil. It, every child that's ever been born, some of their first words within the top ten are, No! I remember each one of my child, a little bitty, could barely walk. And I'd say, okay, let's put this up. And they'd look at me and go, no, who do you think you are? While I'm playing with this toy, I had the privilege of rearing five children together. So pretty early on in their life, they would take a toy that they dearly loved and whap their brother or sister over the head with it and say, mine, ah, come get it, biggin." We didn't have to teach them that. That comes naturally for humans. I was in uh, one of the zippy queues here in town, and this little kid, probably two or three years old, was walking down the aisle with both hands out, just knocking everything in the aisles in the floor. And the mother who was at the, at the standing in line looks and says, Oh, kids these days. I really want to go, if I go ahead and give him my watch now, will that guarantee that he's not going to mug me in like 10 years? If left to ourselves, we are wicked. We are evil. Everybody in here who works in law enforcement knows that humans will look at you square in the face, adult humans, and lie, lie, lie. No, as far as I know, I was going the speed limit. I have no idea why you would... Trouble yourself to pull me up. So we lie. We're evil. We're wicked. And that's all humanity. We know it. We have shame about it. Our natural inclination is wickedness. I just had, Ron just came over to me and said, hey, you know about this guy? He's leaving this morning to go to Paris Island to boot camp. And the first thought that went through my mind was, I got to send him a postcard in about two weeks. So is your wimpy drill instructor still unable to run as fast as you? Love your pastor. That was my first inclination. Because I'm wicked. I'm evil. It all came from this moment in the garden. And that cancer just weaves its way through our history. Seems like every 30 or 40 years, some Wicked, evil person will rise to the top. And millions of people will die for their hubris. We are wicked and evil. And we can't fix ourselves. All the self-help programs, all of our attempts to be better people fail. And fail utterly. We can't live up to our own moral standard. And so God sent His Son. John 3.16, a verse everybody in this room knows. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. And Jesus came 
And the Shekinah glory of God was no longer something that just hovered over the temple. The glory of God became a man, and he came and lived among us. And he was tempted in every way, just like we are. And he lived in this earth, and he got up every morning, and he he worked. And he had frustrations, and he had good days, and he had bad days, and he lived just like we did. And then at the age of 30, he began his ministry. And the power of God just flowed through him in an amazing way. He literally, we talked about this last week, literally banished illness from the nation of Israel. He saw somebody sick, bam, you're not sick anymore. Blind person, bam, now you can see. Deaf person, you can hear. Hunger, which is something that has plagued humanity from our existence. Most of human endeavors have been acts to prepare for and equip oneself to eat. Jesus took one tuna fish sandwich, divided among 5,000 people. He could just make food appear. So here this man was that could banish sickness, who could Feed people who showed so much love. And the response of humanity was look at him and say, kill it. That's how wicked we are. That God broke into human history. God himself literally tinted among us. And humanity said, kill it. And we gather together. And we, with the crowd, cried out, Crucify him! And this God-man was taken outside of the city like the worst of the criminals and nailed to a tree. Now, God loves to take terrible situations and turn them into beautiful ones. And the most perfect example of this is the crucifixion. The most vile, wicked, evil act in human history. Mankind itself condemning to death God himself. God was able to take that and twist it into the most beautiful act of love in human history. Isn't that amazing? God had said throughout the Old Testament that if there was sin, there had to be payment for it. The Bible tells us that the payment, the wages for sin, is death, both spiritual and physical death. But man has a dilemma. We can't pay our own debt. We keep sinning. And so in that act, God, who had never sinned, Jesus Christ, who had never disobeyed his parents, who had never showed hatred toward his fellow man, who had never done anything wrong, became the sacrifice for us. 
So that when Christians look to the cross, we see an act of mercy. If you think about it, the fact that this room is filled with crosses is a weird thing. That's a strange thing. Nobody around here has a necklace, at least I hope you don't, with the yellow mama all around your neck. Right? The, the, the electric chair that used, was used in Alabama for so long. We don't, we don't do that. We don't walk around with hangman's noose on, in beautiful gold around our neck. I mean, some weird people probably do, but most people don't. We don't think of adorning ourselves with instruments of death. And that's exactly what the cross was. It was designed for a person not only to be killed, but to be killed in a public spectacle so that everybody who saw it could say, whatever he did, I don't want to do. And so the fact that we, we as Christians have crosses on everything is because we recognize and realize that without the cross, we are without hope. Because when Jesus hung on that cross, all of the punishment for our sin that we deserve, all of the shame that we all still struggle with, all of that wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on His perfect Son instead of us. So that the words that He uttered from the cross for us as believers, are the most freeing words ever uttered in human history. It is finished. And then he was taken down from that grave and he was put in a borrowed tomb. And if he was still there, all the stuff I said about the cross was a lie. Lots of people die. Lots of people experience horrific pain. You see, where Jesus is unique is that God accepted the sacrifice and three days later, he got up. You see, the Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. Gandhi, Holly Selassie are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Zeno is dead. Mary Baker Eddy is dead. Aristotle is dead. Immanuel Kant is dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. And Jesus is alive. He and he alone conquered the grave. In fact, he descended to Hades and came back with the keys of death and hell. As I read the editorials this morning, I asked myself the question that they seem to be groping for, so what? How does that impact me? Well, the clear answer to the question is, the immediate answer to the question is, the answer to the question that we all, all know and, and are familiar with is the fact that death can't have victory over us as believers anymore. I've had to change the way I said this. I used to always say I love to do the funerals of 
believers, but that's always been taken wrong because it's, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the funeral of a believer, someone that lived for Christ, is an easy funeral to do. It is so easy to point to that grave and say, that ain't her. She ain't here no more. She's in heaven. And this is not, I have the same funeral I preach just about every funeral I do. Her story is not over. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable broken body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? For believers, we don't have to be afraid of death. After our last breath, our next step is clearly written in the text. We don't have to be afraid. For those of you who've lost someone who went along with Christ, you don't have to be afraid. Your story, their story is not over and your story with them is not over. But what does it mean for the living? What is the import of what Jesus, Jesus getting out of that grave, how does that impact me? How does that affect me here today? If you're a Christian... That's how we walk. In Romans chapter 6, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Now, what that is saying is this. When you become a Christian, you die to your old self. And what this verse in Romans chapter 6, this passage is saying is, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead allows us to say, those who are free in Christ are free indeed. We are no longer slaves to sin. Slave didn't tell me what to do. Jesus tells it what to do. And if we can live in the power of the resurrection, that means that we no longer live from sin to repentance to sin to repentance. It means we can be free. We can live a life free, living our life for Him. We're free to obey. Martin Luther wrote a book that was kind of well known called The bondage of the will. And in it, he's teaching that everything that a person does outside of Christ is sin. I I think that the Bible would teach that. He, He kind of philosophically takes it a little further and says, even the things that we think are good that we do outside of Christ are actually sinful. If I go and, you know, and I take all my money and I give it to to build a cancer center for, for little kids, then I'm doing that either so that my name will be, it'll be the Thomas Harrison Cancer Center for Little Kids or so that I can earn favor with God or for whatever reason I'm doing. No, even if we do a good thing, it's sinful outside of Christ is what Luther is trying to teach in, in the book. Amen. 
Jonathan Edwards came along and he wrote a book, kind of the sequel to it, that's called The Freedom of the Will. And in it, he teaches that in Christ, we alone are free to obey. We can actually do things for God. We can actually serve him. We're no longer bound to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're free. In our culture, so many things tie us down. So many things pull at us to do this thing or that thing. This drug, this thing to drink, this action to take. So many things pull us. Here in our CR program that we have on Sunday nights, I think I shared with our group a few Wednesday nights ago about a man who came and he said, I need to talk to you. And after it was over, we sat out in the gathering area and he said, I want with everything in me to stop doing heroin. And he explained that it's taken his family, it's taken his, his mom and dad won't have anything to do with him, and he's stolen from everybody that he loves, and all of his friends won't return his calls. It's destroyed his life. And he's like, I want everything, everything in me, I want to just stop doing this, it's killing me. And the human in me wants to go, well then just stop. Just, just don't do it anymore. But it doesn't work that way. We all know that it doesn't work that way. We've all seen people throw their lives away one pill at a time, one drink at a time. I had an, I've had several family members that literally drank themselves to death knowing they were doing it. Would tell you, if I don't give this up, I'm going to die. Being told by the doctor, your liver is shot. If you don't stop drinking, you will die. And leave the doctor's office and go bob some wild Irish roads. The boy that I referred to left this church after sitting out there for 20 minutes and went and got a fix. Because we're bound. Sometimes it's not big things like that that we think about as those things. If you think of the story of the prodigal son, there were two brothers. One of the brothers was the one that went off and he got drunk and he got him some girls and he got all his friends until his money ran out and then he was in the pig pen. And that's what we think of oftentimes. But you know what the older brother, the one that stayed there and worked that everybody looked at like he was a good guy? The whole point of the story was they were both headed to hell. The devil's smart. He's going to use whatever he can to tempt you so that you don't look to the cross, so that you can, can be numbed and just move along from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing until you're gone and it's too late. The impact of the cross, the impact of the empty tomb says, we don't have to live like that. Just because Jesus got up out of that grave, we can be free. We can serve him. So if you're a Christian, that empty tomb means that you are free to obey him. And if you're in this room and you've never been saved, what it means for you is that you can be free. I don't, you know, the great theologian Bob Dylan wrote a song, you got to serve somebody. Some of you got that. It took a little time. It kind of rolled out across the crowd. Hey, did he say Bob Dylan? Uh, can he say that in church? 
Bob Dylan wrote, sang a song, said, that said, everyone serves somebody. You got to serve somebody. We all have a master that we serve. Amen. And the question to ask yourself is, who do you serve? Amen. And as we look at the tomb, that tomb that is empty, that tomb is devoid of a person, in that we see that we can be saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you who were dead in trespasses and sin, and whence you once walked, following the course of this world, just doing what everybody else is doing, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of the fact that he got up out of that grave, you can be free. And so whether you're a believer or not in this room today, as we look at the grave, ask yourself, what am I going to do with it today? If you're a Christian, that's the power that we live in. Look to that grave and live it. If you're not a believer, behold, today is the day of salvation. As we come to this time of invitation, Let's look to the grave. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that that tomb is empty. Lord, I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would convict them and draw them and show them their desperate need for a Savior. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, that every Christian in here would live every day like it's Easter Sunday. That we live in the light of that empty tomb. Lord, these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.